Hi there, just a quick note about the episode that you're about to listen to. I had some problems Skyping with Susan Frankie, the guest that you're about to listen to. I don't know what happened, but when I played the recording back, there was a hum all the way through it, and I had to send it out to get it fixed, to get it corrected, because anything that I did, it made us sound like we were in a box. And though the audio is still somewhat sounds like I'm distant, um, it's much better than it was, and I am blaming Mercury Retrograde for this because I have no idea what happened. So I appreciate your patience through this episode, and I hope that you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. guest is Susan Frankie. I've met her through Facebook. We are fellow Tetralogy of Flowers, as we call each other, TOFers. Uh, Tetralogy of Flow is a congenital heart disease that we both happen to have. And I wanted to talk to her today because we have something in common and to spread the message about congenital heart disease and how it's the number one birth defect in the United States. And I just wanted to talk to her today about how she grew up with the same disease. I think we're close in age. How old are you, Susan? I'm 53. Yeah, okay, I'm 48. So we were relatively close in age. And I just wanted to talk to her about her experiences growing up with a congenital heart disease and share my experiences and then just talk about our perspective of life and things. So, Susan, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for this opportunity and to spread awareness, which I think is so important. I think so too. So you're 53. Let's start from the beginning. Let's hear your story of how your parents found out and how you grew up. And we have chatted through Facebook and shared our story about how we thought we were fixed when we were younger. They patch you all up and and then you're like, you're fixed. And then we learned several years later, we're not fixed so much. <laughs> so, yeah. Surprise. Yeah, Correct. exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, when my mother was pregnant with me, she did not know that I had Tetralogy of Fallot. And I was diagnosed by sheer luck because my mom's um, doctor was on vacation when I was born. And a pediatric cardiologist just happened to be there. And I was diagnosed immediately upon birth, which I know for my age and you know just our general age range was unusual. I know other people have waited maybe three to four months for a proper diagnosis. But so in that one regard, I was very lucky that he happened to be there. And he was my cardiologist for 18 years until oh, wow. at, that t- at that time, they would say, you can no longer go to a children's hospital because you're 18. I don't know if you had that experience as well. Uh, no, I didn't. From my memory, my parents found out when I was two. I, you know, I was oh a blue, I think. I mean, that's the story that stuck in my head. Wow. Of I was two. I was a blue baby. You know, I right. did the squatting. You sent me some baby mm-hmm. pictures. 
squatting is very common because it's the the main artery in your leg in your leg. Correct. Yeah. That, yeah. That pushes uh, the blood flow up to the heart, makes you feel better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. So I think I was like two, and then they don't recommend surgery till you're like five. So I that waited. Right. Yeah. So I was five with my first surgery, and I. I was five too. Oh, you were? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I jumped around from hospitals. I had a lot of complications. I don't know if you did too. But by the time my fourth open heart surgery, part of Tetralogy of Flow, there's a hole in your heart. There's a hole between the two ventricles. So the oxygenated blood and the deoxygenated blood works together, you know, meshes together and it's not supposed to. So you get shortest of breath and that's where the, you know, the blue baby comes from. You just are not, just lack of oxygen. So I, I, I bounced around to several hospitals in Southern California and then I was fixed. And all I remember is make sure you see a cardiologist every year. And I was like, okay. And for what I'd been through, I was pretty healthy, pretty normal, you know, shortness of breath, heart palpitations. But, and we'll talk about later, you know, I just didn't know any different. I would go to the cardiologist and the, you know, that they would go, what are you doing here? You're fine. You know, I was one of their youngest patients. So I never had right. like a pediatric cardiologist or anything. Oh, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Actually. So who did your surgery? Did you go to the proper surgeon for that, to a pediatric surgeon? Uh, yes, I had several. I was at Long Beach Memorial. I was at Los Angeles Children's. I was at St. Jude, I think. And there was another hospital. I don't. I had a lot of complications with infections and just all kinds of things. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, no, you're, no, yeah. it's. When I had my pulmonary valve replacement five years ago, the surgeon there said, you were very sick. He's like, you were very sick. Because I had some kind of, um, I had like a hole in my stomach. I don't even remember, but they had put, cover the hole, they used like a Teflon tissue, and my body rejected it. So they had to go in and use my own tissue or something. Yeah, it was a lot. So I've never heard of that. Oh, really? No, never. Because I had the Teflon patch as well. Oh, really? That was, from, that was my second surgery when I was seven years old. So the first surgery I had was the BT shunt. Did you have that one? I don't think so. I don't so know what I had. Actually, yeah, that one failed pretty much within six months. Oh, my goodness. For me. Right. So that was, at that time, <clears throat> that was the surgery to get you to the next surgery, which is the repair. So... Again, as you know, they didn't do microsurgery back then. It was all height and weight restrictions. And, you know, I don't know if you remember being weighed constantly and all of that. But they, they decided at age seven that I was tall enough and big enough for that second repair, which was the biggest surgery that I've had. Oh, just up until my pulmonary valve replacement, which was also five years ago. I think we had ours almost at the same time. I think so. Also part of tetralogy flow, tetra meaning four. So you have <laughs> the um, you have the hole in the heart. You've got mitral valve prolapse, tricuspid regurgitation. Stenosis. Steno- and pulmonary stenosis. So the pulmonary artery mm-hmm. is narrowed, and then they go in. Part of the repair is they go in and shoot a balloon up to widen it. But we find out later that the valve disintegrates because of that, but we'll talk about that later. Right. Exactly what happened to me as well. In my case, I think they cut it open. And I remember them telling me as a kid that they didn't think I even needed to have a pulmonary valve. What? Which, 
at the time, I even as a little kid, I thought that was very unusual. But I don't know. That was the thinking at the time. And I had I had the same medical team for 18 years, essentially, in Detroit. So it sounds a little different from your story where you were bounced around a lot. Yeah, and I'm not quite sure why, but I'm sorry to circle back. What is the BT shunt? Because I don't know what that is. Oh, so what they do is they take a vein in your left arm and they essentially tie it off and they route it into your heart, hoping that that will give it that extra blood flow. Oh, okay. But, you know, it worked for a brief time. It's, if you recall, there's a movie about it uh, called Something the Lord Made, and that's on HBO, where they go into that, how that's the beginning of all of open heart surgery, just in general, was the BT shunt. Okay. And it was, in, it was invented by a black janitor who worked for a white cardiologist. And this janitor had aspirations of going to medical school, but due to racism, they would not let him. So he just worked for a doctor and he was able to figure out this surgery at Johns Hopkins. Oh, wow. So it's, it's a very, yeah, it's a very interesting story, actually. Oh, it does sound very, I haven't heard of that. Yeah. Oh, you definitely have to check that out. Yeah. His name is Vivian Thomas. So, so that, how did the BT shunt, then what does BT stand for? Blaylock Towsing. And that's what's so unbelievable is really Thomas, Vivian Thomas, is the one that developed the shunt. But they gave the credit to Alfred Blaylock and a woman, interestingly enough, Helen Tossing, and she was deaf. So she was able to practice cardiology by touch and by like feeling the heartbeat. Oh, wow. It's really that. So she's interested. It's a very interesting story. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I didn't def- know absolutely. So you had a surgery at five and at seven. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then from there, what happened? We ended up moving to Chicago when I was nine. And I was not able to find medical care in Chicago. So we would fly back to Detroit for checkups fairly regularly every year or two. And as I said, at 18, they said I was too old to continue in a children's hospital. Now, fortunately, today that thinking has shifted. So people don't get lost the way that I did. Sure. So I was in Chicago as an adult trying to fend for myself in this situation. And I would try cardiologist after cardiologist after cardiologist. And none of them knew what to do with me because they were all adult onset people. They weren't specialists in a congenital condition. And probably same story for you. They weren't used to people surviving as long as you and I did. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that was part of the problem, honestly. Yeah. Because so, the mortality rate is like, if you don't have corrective surgery at all, I think at one point I read like, you don't live till like past 18. Correct. That's yeah. Said, right. Yeah. So and in fact, five, five years ago, Mayo Clinic told me at the time I was 48 years old, they said only 20% of us are still alive. What? That's that can't be very right. sobering. That's no, that's what they said. Really? Really? Because they said this weekend I went to the Los Angeles benefit at, for the Adult Congenital Heart Association, and they said there's 1.4 million adults living with a birth defect. Now, maybe that's their guess because they know that 
all of us aren't registered, if you will, are not exactly. are not getting the proper care. Exactly. Because we exactly. don't we didn't know, especially at our age. We, you know, I was told just make sure you see a cardiologist every year. I had no idea why. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Me too. I didn't fully understand it at, at age nineteen when I'm out there looking for a doctor. I didn't understand it fully. Now this is people at our age. They're seeing only. Um, 20% of us are still alive. Wow. For the, if you're in your fifties. Now those statistics are dramatically better for younger people. Yes. So that's the beacon of hope here, which is great. Yes. So did you finally find the care that you needed or let's talk a little bit about your personal, I mean, did you go to college? Did you have a career? Were you like a normal functioning adult? Because I was, you know, I had shortness of Mm -hmm. breath and heart palpitations, but that's just what you had to live with. Right, right. Yeah. Yes, I did. I went to college. I went to Lake Forest College, and I got my master's degree at Dominican University in library science. I worked as a reference librarian for over 10 years, and I also have a paralegal certificate and a partial accounting degree. Wow. So I went. I was able to get through school and, and a variety of topics and in a lot of ways lead a very normal life in that regard. The problem going back to the doctors is that eventually I did find someone who claimed he specialized in tetralogy of Fallot. And I went to him for 15 years. Oh, and geez. he told yeah, here it comes. Right? Oh, God. <laughs> well, when so you he said he claims, I, that's kind of scary. Sorry, go ahead. Yes. Well, he said I was cured up until age 48. He said, you're cured, you're fine. He didn't really run thorough tests, though, when I look back on the situation. And I think he, maybe he meant well, but he was just in over his head. So he retired, and a month later, I saw a different doctor and was told I was in heart failure, and I needed a valve replacement. And then she's going on and on. You might only have seven years left to live. Like, it was the most shocking. I'll never forget that day ever as long as I live. And so I didn't know what to do because he said a month earlier I was cured. And then she's telling me, you know, I'm not, and it's very dire. So I just went to Mayo Clinic and let them decide. And they unfortunately did tend to agree with the second opinion that it was dire shape. So they did surgery a couple days after I met with Dr. Warren's up at Mayo Clinic. And it was just the most shocking thing for me because I would have sworn that I felt well and nothing was wrong with me. But however, after the surgery, when I recovered, it was such a dramatic improvement. It was unbelievable. Right. And, and they said to me, probably to you too, that it comes on very slowly and you just adapt to not feeling well. Yep. So is that your... Well, I, um, yeah, you don't know how bad you feel until you feel good. I found myself in Alaska the summer of uh, 2014, and I was working there for the summer, and I would walk around the property. There's no extreme elevation. There was no hills, but I was getting really winded, and I'm like, God, man, I am fat and out of shape. You know, this is crazy. And yeah. so then like one day I was fine, the next I wasn't. And the only thing 
the doctor, yeah, the only thing that the doctors, you know, looking back, because I continued to work in Alaska for six weeks, another six weeks. I went six weeks feeling this way, feeling like crap, thinking every day it was going to get better. And I flew to Seattle because at the time my um, best friend from high school lived there. So I wasn't working. So I was going to go visit her. And I just kept telling her, man, I feel like crap. She goes, you promise me you'll see a doctor when you get here. And I said, yes. So the night before I'm supposed to, or the night I'm supposed to get on a plane, I call her and said, I am not doing well at all. She's like, I'm taking you to the emergency room. And I said, that's fine. I just want to feel better. I really thought, you know, I had no clue what was wrong. So Mm -hmm. you walk into the emergency room at 530 in the morning. You tell them that you have all these symptoms. And I'm telling you, I had chronic edema. My legs were, I, you know, we're talking via Skype, but they're like huge. I can't breathe. I can't lie flat. I had no idea. I even looked up congestive heart failure and I was like, I don't have congestive heart failure. Like I thought something, I don't know what I thought. And of course, like a million people are in the, you know, the room, they're putting IVs in, they're getting me on Lasix, they're, the cardiologist is coming in and nobody's telling me anything. And then I'm transported to another hospital because they wanted me on a telemetry bed And I saw the paperwork from the paramedic and it said, CHF. I go, I have congestive heart failure. She's like, "Uh, among other things. And I was like, and it was just a shock because, yeah, because you, you, you're told that you're fine. You know, you're fixed. And then next minute you're like, yeah, you may have 10 years to live. Like my doctor was like, if you don't have this, you may get a year out of it or 10 years out of it. And he was, I was so traumatized from, you know, my earlier experiences as a child that he thought I wasn't going to come back. Like he thought I wasn't going to have the surgery because he was my, Mm -hmm. he was my heart failure doctor and I had to have a pacemaker. I went into complete heart block, you know, all these things. And he was Mm -hmm. shocked. But to get back to your question is he asked me, when's the last time you felt good? And I had to think back. And I'm like, God, it's been years, you know, like, you know, I just think back to when it, and you're right. It's very gradual and you just don't Mm -hmm. know, like you just start adapting to it and you don't even realize how bad you feel until you feel better. Right. That was my experience. Exactly. Not till they, I don't want to say fixed, but until I had the, the pulmonary valve replacement and maybe six months out, I felt like a new person. Right. Was that. Your yeah. Situation. Yeah. I thought, God, this is, I could breathe. I feel like yes. I could run. Yes. Like, I mean, not that I can run, but like, I just, I went to cardiac rehab. Did you go to cardiac rehab as well? I did. Yeah. I did. It was the best thing ever. Would you agree? So I, I do have a question for you. Were you told not to exercise as a child? Because I was. Um, let me think. I don't know if I was exactly told that, but I knew I had limitations, if you will. Yes. For me at age 48, when they put me in cardiac rehab, it was just such a psychological adjustment because they'd always been saying, be careful, be cautious, you know, don't overdo anything. And all of a sudden they're sticking me on a treadmill. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, wait a minute. So I think they didn't really fully understand the psychological impact of that for me. Possibly yes. for you. 
I, I remember, I just remember being in the hospital. I was in like ICU for like three months as a child. And back then they rotated you every half hour so that you oh, wouldn't get bed yeah. sores. But now if you're not sitting up and out of bed walking after 24 hours after open heart surgery, they're like, right. why aren't you getting <laughs> out your ass out of bed? You know, it's like, oh my God. So true. Yeah. It's Absolutely. so different. So to circle back, I want to know how that doctor, what made him think you were cured? So they actually were able to answer that question. When he did the echocardiogram, he only looked at the front of my heart or the, you know, and the problem is in the back. I'm sure you know. So he completely missed it for, they said minimum 10 years that he had missed this problem. And they, I believe had, I will not ever name his name, but other patients had ended up in Mayo Clinic similar to me because of him. And the problem, what Mayo said was the definition of a specialist used to be if they met two or more people with a congenital heart defect, they were automatically a specialist. Now they've changed that, as you know, probably in the last maybe three years, these doctors are required to take exams and boards and pass and demonstrate that they are qualified to help us. And I think this is my own theory that he knew he wasn't going to pass those boards. So he retired. Oh, wow. That's pretty, that is pretty eye-opening, isn't it? I just, I guess I was naive and I, I thought if a doctor was presenting himself as a specialist, he had the credentials to back it up. Right. And I'm, I know you've probably heard this from other people because I know I have, which it's just unbelievable in this day and age that that's even possible. Right. Well, what I was shocked was I was seeing a cardiologist locally and I had just, yeah, I went in for my, I started going back to my yearly exams. I mean, I skipped probably a handful of years of going because like nothing was wrong. And then I started right. going back because I was supposed to. I'm like, I better go see the doctor. And he was one that was like, what are you doing here? You're fine. And they did an echo every year and everything was fine. And then in December, the year before, so December 2013, I had a gallbladder attack and I had my oh. gallbladder removed. And, of course, I had to get cardiac clearance. And... Mm-hmm. The echo technician was taking too long. This, the, cardio, the cardiologist was upset. So they finally got in there, and he stood over them while they, they did the echo. He was like, everything looks great. I was like, great, oh, awesome. Wow. And then six months later, you're telling me I don't have a pulmonary valve? Right. Or nine I months later or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> you know? And so from my understanding is – cardiologists only have about 20 hours of training in school on congenital heart disease. So, and there's what, a dozen different types of congenital heart defects? At least. Yeah. So how could you be a specialist or even have intimate knowledge of these, all the different defects in 20 hours? And then on top of it, these cardiologists, don't know better to refer you to somebody exactly <laughs> who can't exactly. handle you. Is it an ego thing where 
I, I'm curious about your doctor. Was it he didn't want to pretend like he didn't know something instead of you being properly treated? I don't understand. I, with him, I don't know that it was ego. I just think he was in over his head, but he thought he was in his appropriate lane of expertise, and he clearly wasn't. And I, I guess one other comment that when I look back, the hospital where he worked, he had started out at a very prestigious hospital in Chicago, but again, very abruptly moved to this other hospital that really had I had a problem that he diagnosed would not have been able to handle it at all. They were a very small hospital, but I went to him because he was the only person I could find at the time. Wow. So I guess my advice would be to look at the doctor, of course, but also look where they're practicing at the facility. And can that facility handle you if there is a problem? That right. would be my one kernel of advice. Yeah, but now with the Adult Congenital Heart Association, they have actually developed an accreditation program, like you said earlier. They have to take boards and exams, and their facility has to become accredited, not necessarily be accredited to treat somebody, but you know that they've been vetted. Right. Vetted properly. is a great word. Yes. Yes. That's a, and I'm just so beyond grateful for that. I think that's going to save lives. Oh, absolutely. I really do. Absolutely. One of the physicians that was at this benefit on Saturday, they gave him an award, and I don't remember what the award was, but he was a younger, maybe, I don't know how old he was. Uh, by looking at him, maybe he was in his late 30s, early 40s, maybe. And he said, you know, I got a call in the middle of the night because most of these are pediatric cardiologists as well. And mm-hmm. the uh, a baby was delivered with one of the birth defects and the parents had no idea that this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, the, the best thing to be able to say to these parents is that this child's going to grow up and live a life that's thriving. It, they're going to go to right. college and they're going to do these be, because of the technology alone is saving us, saving children. And we're growing up to be healthy adults. Right. And fu- high functioning. High functioning. Yep. And, yeah. Yep. But back when we were born, that was not the prognosis. I'm sure that you were given. No. I definitely was not given no. that either. So I think we've surprised a lot of people, which I, is, is good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember um, the story that I remember I was given to, uh, like a one in 1000 chance of living. And I remember my dad telling me before he passed away how he prayed that I would live and I lived, I got better. And he thought he had no more wishes or no more prayers left because, you know, you know, his, that one came true and he didn't deserve anything else or something. So, yeah. So you went in, you did library science for 10 years and got married. Do you have any children? Mm -hmm. I was told not to have children. I know that that has changed now. I think the people with Tetralogy of Fallot, most people can if their doctors approve it. They, I think they were just so unsure what to do with me. They just said, don't even try. So I didn't. Mm, yeah, no, I was told you could have children. You just have to monitor you closely. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but I never had a desire to have children. Thus, no children. 
I mean, I that way. Just everything just seemed so uncertain about the future that I didn't know if I should bring a child into that sure. uncertainty. Sure. So how 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 do you think having this heart disease has shaped your life? I you know, in some ways it is a weirdly people do say a blessing because you look at the value of life and the importance and you know what is the most important thing in life. And I feel like a lot of people who are healthy just take it for granted. They haven't had the fight and the struggle that you and I have had to just get this far. And so it's been easier for them and they don't maybe have the same appreciation that you and I would have for certain things. And I've always, I guess I've always felt different deep down. Like I don't fully, like I'm not fully in with the healthy crowd. Do you know what I mean? Uh, do you mean, Just, Woody, I don't, how do you mean you feel different? Well, I guess because I look healthy and people, unless I tell them, would have no idea. Yeah, same with me. What what I've been through. But while they're having just some very, very normal routine life, I'm, I feel like I'm at the doctor a lot more than they are. And I feel like I worry about a lot of things just because of all that I've been through. And I think what you had talked about earlier in the conversation of childhood trauma and just in a way being haunted by a childhood where you're in the hospital and not understanding what, why you're there fully and what's going on. Yep. And you're alone. Your parents aren't there because, you know, 3 a.m. It's just you. Yeah. And then your parents, I mean, I don't know how your parents were, but I'm, it's very taxing for parents, right? It's emotionally awful. I can only imagine. So there's some kind of like checking out, you know what I mean? So they're, you know, almost definitely not, they're emotionally available for you. So you are that young managing and dealing with all this on your own. Yes. That you said that beautifully. That's been my experience. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm not blaming my parents or anybody else's parents, you know, anybody, parents in general. It's mm-hmm. just, that was my experience, and I think it's just a natural, it's so overwhelming, and you don't know what's going to happen, and my parents were bankrupt with just the medical bills, and... Oh, wow. Well, uh, my dad's insurance stopped paying after oh, so wow. much, because, yeah, because... Yeah, so my... um they had to finagle it to where it was in my mom's name and then she filed bankruptcy. I mean, it's just the, oh, I mean, sorry. this is in the seventies and it healthcare right. isn't what it was is today. Can you imagine? No, I, I can't. Yeah. So I, on just so many different levels, is it just, a some, something you don't wish on anybody. So, uh, right. Yeah. And you, you know, our parents handled it the best that they knew how at the time. So I'm not blaming them. At right. All. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know about you, but my pulmonary valve replacement was November of 2014. When was yours? December of 2014. Okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so. Wow. So you've read my book and mm-hmm. complete divine. Book, oh, thank you. Divine. Thank talk you. about divine intervention. They're meant to be here. Yeah. So and then just recently I 
came down with a bacterial infection, which attached itself to my pacemaker. So I yep, had to. I remember. Yeah, so they had to. <laughs> They so had they to. Took it out? They had to take out not just. They had to do the full lead extraction, which only three hospitals on the West Coast do it, and it happened to be oh UCLA where I was at. And yeah, I had some of the best doctors, some of the best care, and then they have to wait to put it back in because I'm 100% dependent. And yeah, I mean it was just the whole thing. So I spent another month in the hospital. I'm uh, sorry. No, no worries. But again. I have wonderful insurance and thank God for that because. Right. Yeah. And I was lucky to go to Mayo Clinic because I really think without them, I don't know what would have happened. I mean, I'm just grateful to them forever. Oh, of course. And they, I I presume they have like a full team there and everything. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I, I don't think I've ever gotten better care anywhere than, than Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Wow. It was amazing. So you said you always feel different around healthy people, but how do you view life in general? Well, I, it's funny that you say that. I ended up majoring in philosophy in college. I think I was just trying to come to terms with everything that I'd been through and try to find the meaning. And, and again, that sobering statistic of only 20% of us being here at this age I don't know. It just, it's strange. I think why me? I mean, I'm incredibly grateful that it was me, but what about the other 80%? It's very sobering. So I, I think I think about these, the big life questions maybe more than other people that I know, just because I've actually lived through experiences that a lot of times are indescribable to someone who's healthy. If, if you've never just really felt that fear, I don't know if you've felt that. A fear, and what do you but, mean? Well, just when I was diagnosed with the heart failure five years ago, and it was just so overwhelmingly shocking to me. And just that fear that I, it was just I couldn't shake it until that surgery was behind me. Yeah, I don't know if I was, it was, I mean, definitely there's fear and you're scared because you don't know what's going to happen. But there was also a part of me that just had a serious will to live. And I I agree. You know what I'm saying? And so I I made it through that. But this time around, my attitude was a little bit different. I thought, well, I got my health care directive all in order. You know, I did all my official paperwork. Mm-hmm. And stuff because I thought, and then after I did that, because I thought, well, I don't want to be in a you know coma for 25 years. I don't want my family to keep me alive, you know, right. if I'm a vegetable, totally you know. Do. So yes. I wanted that definitely written down on paper. But I thought, you know what? I'm not going to die that way. I'm going to die on the table. I really thought that, like, and if I made it through this, like, I just was done. I was so not done with life because I wasn't ready to die. It was just, I am so done dealing with this. I'm so, oh, know. you know, and I just thought, you know what? I'm going to just die on the table. Like, I'm just not going to wake up. And that was my fear too. That's funny that you say that. Cause that just seems when you're at your most vulnerable is on the table. 
Oh, absolutely. It's the worst feeling ever because the doctors are doing their professional thing. You're, you know, somebody that they just have to take care of almost like not a human, right? You're just, you're a project (laughs) and they don't treat you. Not that they are bad, but they just are, you know, doing their job and they forget. I think that this is a person and I have feelings and I'm terrified and I'm, crying like every time I get wheeled into an operating room I am like breaking down it's awful they they actually at Mayo had to sedate me before they did the surgery like outside the operating room like they calmed me down to go even into the operating room yeah and I keep yeah I keep begging them I'm like you I need something and then they see me break they think that I'm not going to be that had. And then it's like, <laughs> here you go. <laughs> you know, right. I try to tell them, I'm like, you pull a bandaid off. I want to be out. I am not kidding you. I know. <laughs> I agree. I get it. Believe That's what I'm saying. I guess my point, you're articulating this very well because with healthy people, they just don't, they've never gone through this. And I'm glad I wouldn't wish this on anybody, like you said. But then I feel like I'm just different because I have this life experience. That is just so unusual. Really, most people don't go through what we've been through. Right. For a lifetime, a full lifetime of this. Yeah. But that's interesting because I didn't grow up thinking I was different. Like I didn't feel, yeah, I didn't, I was fixed. I had these heart palpitations. But like you said, nobody would know what had happened to me if I didn't tell them. Because one time I had somebody tell me, you look like healthy as a horse. Well, (laughs) You know, thanks, I guess. But right. Until five years ago, I felt like I didn't have any like I I wasn't sick. Does that make sense? Like I I didn't feel. Yeah, I didn't feel sick. Like I was fixed and I was normal and it's all over with until five years ago when all this stuff happens and you go, oh, wow, I have to live with this for the rest of my life. And oh, wow, I do need to take medication. I wasn't on any medication. My heart failure doctor asked me like four times, are you sure that you're not taking any medication? I said, I'm positive. I've never been on med. He was just like blown away. You know, just certain things. I'm like, no, like I, you know, I've done 5Ks. I walked mud runs. I've done, you know, I've done all these things and thought, didn't think anything different about it. Right. So it wasn't till recently, you know, into the last five years where I'm like, wow, I'm quote unquote sick. That, I mean, for me, that five years ago, too, was just such a wake up call, even though we both know in the back of our minds that we're always at risk. When that risk is staring you in the face, it's a whole different story. Yep. And I just never in a million years thought I'd be at Mayo Clinic having another surgery. Right. And then I'm sure they've told you that there's also the possibility that it will be uh, needing another replacement down the line. Um, yeah, and they said that the valve could last 10 to 15 years. Yes, I was told that too. Yeah. So how did your perspective of life change, you know, five years ago? Did it change or was it the same? I would say that what was there was magnified 100% more. And now I... I feel like I don't say no to things. I really want to try everything and try to really appreciate the time that I have and that I'm healthy right now 
and able to do things. So I just try to get out there as much as I can. I take a lot of, you know, photos and photography, I guess just to capture the moment. And I just, I mean, all this, the cliche things that they say, food tastes better, the, your, the air, you can breathe it better. All those cliches are actually true for me. I mean, how did you respond after your experience five years ago? It was mostly, wow, I'm meant to be alive. And, right. and if this didn't kill me, then there's a purpose here. And I'm not sure what my purpose is still. I feel yes. part of this podcast is my purpose of just inspiring people to live with no regrets yes. and to go beyond their limiting beliefs to live the life that they desire. And I know probably a majority of us wait till something like this happens, a health issue, a, you know, car accident or something traumatic happening before we wake up to see that life is precious. And I'm guilty of it. Even today, you just get wrapped up in the grind of work and being busy and then you just sometimes you just have to stop and breathe and just be like there's more to life than this and I want to do more and I want to impact people's lives positively whether it's one person or a thousand I I, want to leave a a positive legacy and I guess I I do too yeah I, I think that's beautifully said I did feel better physically and cardiac rehab really helped that. So I think just feeling better in general. And then after not being able to sleep for like six weeks, being able to lie flat because I had congestive heart failure. Most mornings I wake up now and I'm like, thank you for being able to sleep and lie flat because you realize you don't realize that you need sleep and comfort until you don't have it. Right. Absolutely. I agree. hundred you percent know? with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's just those little things. And again, you know, I'm not a hundred percent always on board, but I lately, especially I'm like, I just, there's gotta be more to life than this. I want, you know, what do I want? What do I want to do? And I want to make sure I do all those things before I go. And this last time in the hospital, I thought, you know, if I were to die, I've had a pretty good life. I mean, I'm not saying I wanted to, but I, you know, that's the thought that crossed my mind and I made it through this time and I'm like, okay, well, something's going on. I'm meant to be here. So I need to figure it out, you know, and I feel I should be doing some wonderful thing, like getting a Nobel prize, but (laughs) of course I'm just a regular person. So that's not my purpose, I guess. I do try to help people whenever I can. I just think it's really important to pay it forward and be grateful to have made it this far. And like you said, try to be an inspiration to others that they can live this long and have a fulfilling life. Absolutely. And I, I really, truly believe that it just, we have to essentially like keep our side of the street clean, right? So if right. you're happy and healthy and you're kind to the next person, then And if that person was, you know, happy and healthy and kind to the next person, we would, you know, we would all, the the world would be a different place. So I think, you know, the only thing we can control is ourselves. So 
trying to be right. kind to the next person, right? And healthy mm-hmm. mind, body, and spirit for the next person, for the people that come in contact with you. Does that right. make sense? Especially anyone else with a cardiac condition. It just if you can help them. I mean, not everyone is receptive. I'm sure you've seen, but you can do what you can do. Right. So how would you define living with no regrets? Well, in a way, I would say I'm happier after this experience because I'm just so grateful. And I appreciate things more, as I was saying before. And I feel if I'm ever asked to do something on an advocacy level, I will always say yes, because I just think it's so important. I never had anyone to look up to or to guide me. And in fact, I had never met anyone with Tetralogy of Fallot until I was 48 years old. Wow. And that was at the ACHA conference. And I remember walking in that room and there were about 70 people and I cried. I just thought it was amazing to go from total isolation to an almost instant support network. It's just almost indescribable how emotional that was for me. And had you met anyone? No. Mm -mm. And so when I went to Seattle, uh, University of Washington, I was at Swedish and my heart failure doctor had just came from University of Washington and he knew the team there. And I saw a flyer for the Adult Congenital Heart Association so I joined it and, and then there was like all these support groups for people with pacemakers and it was definitely like, wow, there's a whole world out here yes. that I had no idea about. And yes. it's, you know, you were 48, I was 43, if I could do the math and going to these pacemaker support groups, I'm like, I'm too young for this. That was what. Yeah. It was emotional. It was like, I do not belong in this room. The first day of cardiac rehab, I walked in <laughs> and I see all these people with oxygen masks on. Yep. And I'm like, oh my God, this is awful. But it was like the class before me. So it was more for respiratory people. You know, n- nobody in my cardiac rehab class was on oxygen, but it's you know, you feel very young and you're like, what am I doing here? You just feel so out of place. So that's where, but it was, it was like, wow, look at all these people that know what you're going through. It is, it's amazing. And in a way that it's unlocking the mysteries of the universe. That's how I describe it. Because just even look, we've never even talked before and how easy this conversation is. (laughs) Right. Because we understand each other. We're right. in the same situation. I mean, if you just go to a general person you've never met before, it doesn't always flow so easily, the first conversation. Have you, but we have so much binding us together. Right. Have you experienced, uh, in my experience, and I wonder if you've experienced, when you talk about your situation or your health, do people get freaked out? Yes. And they don't know how to respond? Well, it's funny, we just moved to a 55 and over community and the people in here, I feel like this is the first time I've been able to be very open with with some people in here because they seem like they have the life experience. When When you're 20 years old and you're trying to explain this to your college roommate, they just completely don't understand. 
And I, I hear a lot, well, you look fine. But it's an invisible illness. And I think that's what can be frustrating at times. Just there are days when I feel my limits. And I'm sure you have that too. But yes, I, I do. Yes. But I mean, even maybe not, maybe not your college roommate, but even before you moved to an older community that might understand, did you, how was your experience telling people, other people, or just talking about it, about your experiences? Well, I would say prior to this pulmonary valve replacement, I would only talk about it in certain situations. I, I don't know why I don't. Don't know if I felt it was taboo or what, but after this experience, I'm incredibly open about it, and I'll talk very freely about it to people. And so something in me shifted with this experience. What's the other people's reactions when you tell them? Well, I would say here in the in our new neighborhood, people have been very receptive, and it's been very refreshing in all honesty that I can talk about this. And people do seem more empathetic. I don't know if it's because people here are 55 and older for the most part, if that's what it is. But I guess before coming here, it was always a slightly different situation. And I've had people, I think it scared, especially one person I can think of to the point where she just didn't even want to be around me. Really? One of my friends. Yeah. Because she pretty much walked away the minute I was diagnosed, which was surprising. But I've heard from other heart people that's actually quite common. Yes, it is. And it's been in my experience as well. Oh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a very weird. <laughs> it's very weird situation. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's an element of fear. But I want to say to people, this is not contagious. The, the one person I'm thinking of in particular, her father had developed a heart issue unexpectedly. And I guess just from that, she was concerned so much for herself. It was very unusual. Like, oh, this happened to my father, now it happened to you. Am I next? Even oh, though I wow. don't think that's the sequence. But she thought, well, just I can't deal with this. It, in a way, I mean, it was hard at the time, but when I look back, the people that did stand by me, I just feel will forever be my friends. Yes. And, and people, unexpected people in some circumstances really stepped up. Yep. And, and that was a pleasant surprise. So I guess you just see someone's true character when you're put in that situation. Yes. And I, I've, this whole, you know, five years ago, the whole thing about finding out that you're sick and you have to have all these things and it is overwhelming and it is a lot, but I was, I've been told that, you know, I shouldn't share so much because it's overwhelming for others. And I, I've been told that too, you know, and yeah. And I, and I, I, I don't go around telling people like, that's not the first thing that comes out of my mouth because I'd much rather just be normal, you know, and just, I mean, it's not right. a situation for every, it's not a conversation for every situation when that has become a part of you. And it's a, was a big trend, how your life is just flipped upside down. And I have all yes. these new normals now. Right. Right. You know, you, and if somebody 
asks your story, then you tell them or whatever the situation is, obviously when it's appropriate. And you're told that, well, you shouldn't share that because it's overwhelming. Well, how do you think I feel? Yeah, really. You we're, know, we're like, living it. You just you have know? to listen to it. It's yeah. It's not happening to you. Yeah. Right. So, exactly. you know, I'm more cautious now about how much I say and all that stuff. And, of course, I don't want to burden anybody with it. I'm not trying to, like, lay my stuff out to everybody. Right. Um, you know, so it's, you know, I'm very conscientious about that, too. But I do think it's important to be like, hey, this is my life. And yeah, I have to go to the doctor every six months now or once a year. I'm on a slew of medications and there's just things now I have to look out for. And mm -hmm. it's just a new normal. Right. Exactly. I Again, I guess I'm a little different because I'm more open about it. Um, Mayo Clinic actually asked me to do an article for them. So they had to decide to sign away all my HIPAA rights and that they could tell my story. And I, I thought after I did that, what am I hiding? Because maybe it will help someone else. Sure. So I, I did a really abrupt about face, I guess, because before I was much more cautious about it. And then just something within me, I want to advocate. And I guess the main thing for people out there, if, you don't think something is right with your doctor or your care to listen to that intuition because it, often it's right. And I guess I wish, I wish as a librarian, I should have explored more of my options, even if I had to go out of state for medical care, because that's what I ended up having to do in the end anyway. But maybe this could have been caught earlier. And, and I guess I blame, okay. yeah, blame myself. Yeah, well, you shouldn't blame yourself when you're having a professional tell you you're fine. Right. You know how much really, you know, how do you know any different? Right. I do have a mistrust, though, now. And if I get any kind of a bad feeling about a doctor, I will change. Just because I'm so worried about that happening to me again. Absolutely. Do you feel that? Yeah, yeah. I think it's important for everybody, not in just in this situation, but for anybody with any kind of illness, when they go to the doctor, you have to be your own advocate. And I, I'm sure you're the same way. I know exactly what medications they're giving me, why they're mm -hmm. giving it to me. And yeah. if I'm like, that doesn't make sense. You're giving me this. Now you want to give me this to counteract this? Like, no. And then <laughs> they'll go, okay, yeah, you're right. So you have to be your own advocate. If something doesn't feel right to me, don't do it. But as long as I trust my doctors, they can do what they're good at because they know better than I do. They're the professional. It's way right. above my pay grade. Right. And, right. You know, so there is a level of, you know, trust there. But yeah, if something I've, I've even said, I don't want that nurse anymore. Right. Oh, I've definitely been in that situation as yeah. well. Yeah. I think one thing I guess that I've just learned from this whole experience is that they should treat the psychological as well as just the body, like the physical heart. They need to look at the person, like what has this experience done to you long-term? The, there is a certain amount of trauma there. And I've tried to explain that to so many doctors. And I think some of them get it on an intellectual level, perhaps, but I've had a hard time having anyone address that in a proper way. Absolutely. I agree. Have you found? Oh, okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, this last time, like they poked me like four times just to get an IV and I just lost it. I just was right. like crying going, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm so done. And right. I, and luckily one of the doctors was in there and he was just like, okay. And I think he must've wrote it in my chart or something because I was at a teaching hospital. So you get these newbie doctors yeah, you know, on rotation every morning that comes in at like 630 in the morning. And I heard them talking outside the door going, Hey, she's done being poked. <laughs> so yeah. there must have been something in my chart. But then they come in, they're like, sorry, you have to have another IV. And I said, no, you're going to put it right. in when I'm asleep. You already have yeah. one. You can wait till I'm asleep to put in the next one. There's no reason why you need to put it in now. Right. And I fought. And, they were, and my doctor and the head nurse said, you're right. There's no reason. You're going to stop. See? You're going to, so just to everybody out there, be your own advocate. And if you have any sense of your child may have a heart condition or something, make sure they see a specialist, Absolutely. a congenital heart defect specialist for long-term care always. And you can go to the ACHA website, the Adult Congenital Heart Association and they have a directory of physicians that treat people with heart. And that directory is just, it's gold. Because I've used that already twice to get the right care. Oh, really? You know, oh, yeah. That's yeah, amazing. That's fairly new. Within, I'd say, 10 years, would you guess? Yes. That directory? ACHAheart.org. The Adult Congenital Heart Association, ACHAheart.org. And I highly recommend it as well. It's been a lifesaver for me. Yeah, they were founded in 1998, so that's really not that old. Oh, 21 wow. years. But wow. I don't know the growth. They've seen, they've seen extreme growth in the probably the last 10 years. Right. And again it's such an isolating condition because it's so rare that there isn't anyone to ask. You're, you're just completely on your own to try to figure all of this out. Right. Well, thank gosh. One of my doctors in Seattle said, you know, time is on your side. The way technology is improving day by day, who knows where we will be in five or 10 years. Right. Which is amazing. Yes. And I hope it continues. Me too. So do you have any regrets, Susan? Oh, that's a good, I mean, about my health? Or... No, just about life. Oh, about life? Gosh, I can't really think of any offhand. I mean, I do feel happier and healthier now than probably any other time in my life, really. Because my energy is just so much more than it's ever been. And I can walk farther. I can do more things. Um, I'm just grateful for all the people who stood by me through really tough times. I can't really think of a big regret. And for Do, the listeners, how would you define no regrets? A fulfilling life where you are able to do what you want to do. And I really think the most important thing are the people that you surround yourself with, that they're positive, that they're a cheerleader for you that they're on, you know, they have your back, that 
just that they're good people and they're good for you and that you're also good for them. So that that's probably the one thing I've learned and that not everyone is going to understand you and not everyone is going to be your friend and that's fine. Right. Just pick the people who are the best for you and will be there when it gets, the times are tough. Right. I guess. And I do feel fulfilled. I, I'm just glad I can be an advocate in the, you know, thanks to you in this situation and thank you to Mayo Clinic when they asked me to be an advocate for them. I'm really happy to do that. I just wish I'd had someone advocate for me. Right. And I'm sure people did that I just didn't know about. Like all the pioneer children who were the first to have the surgery. Right. I mean, that takes amazing courage for the parents, especially. Yep. When it's just a trial. Right. If you will. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and they don't know what's going to happen. Right. So do you have any closing thoughts? I guess just trust your instincts with your medical team. And if, if you don't feel well and you're telling your doctor this, which in some ways was my experience back in Chicago, and they just keep saying you're fine. I mean, I went with it because I just thought he would know better. I just thought maybe I was a little more tired than I should have been, that kind of thing. And it turns out I, I mean, I did have a problem, a serious problem. So trust your instincts. I guess just be grateful that you've survived and gotten this far in life and just try to help the next person if you can. Right. Well, thank you for your time today, Susan. And I really, oh, it was such a pleasure to speak with you. I'm so glad that you agreed to do this. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you.